Now, this morning we are going to continue our study of the 1689 London Confession. And we are in chapter 10 this morning, what the old writers referred to as the effectual calling. And it's found in the back of the hymnal on page 676. Now, this chapter has four paragraphs. And in this chapter, the confession begins to enumerate the blessings, the spiritual blessings of the Christian life. Calling, justification, adoption, and sanctification. Calling in chapter 10, justification 11, adoption 12, and sanctification 13. Now this treatment of effectual calling has four paragraphs. In the first paragraph, they give you an overview. They open up the basic fundamental concept. And they spell out the, uh, the salient features and the comprehensive scope of effectual calling. And they set forth the great mystery associated with effectual calling. And then in the other paragraphs, uh, in paragraph two, they open up the cause of effectual calling. And then finally, in paragraphs three and four, they talk about the necessity or indispensability of effectual calling. Is effectual calling really necessary? Is it indispensable or can people get to heaven some other way? And then in paragraph three, they spell out an exception. And in paragraph four, they articulate the rule. So you have the necessity or indispensability, the exception and the rule. So you have the concept and the cause and then the necessity. First of all, the concept of effectual calling the concept of effectual calling. And they specify the concept this way. Those whom God, and I'm going to take out hath, I'm going to change it to has, if you don't mind. It's okay. I'm going to change uh, hath to has. I'm going to bring it out of archaic language. Those whom God has predestined to life. He is pleased in his appointed and accepted time effectually to call by his word and spirit out of that state of sin and death in which they are by nature to grace and salvation by Jesus Christ enlightening their minds spiritually and savingly to understand the things of God, taking away their heart of stone and giving them a heart of flesh, renewing their wills and by his almighty power determining them to that which is good and effectually drawing them to Jesus Christ. Yet, so as they come most freely 
being made willing by his grace. So I, I find here, first of all, the salient features. Secondly, the comprehensive scope. And thirdly, the great mystery. Say, so, well, where do you find the features? I find the features in this statement. He is pleased in his appointed time to call by his word of by his word and spirit out of sin and death to grace and salvation by Jesus Christ. Where do you find the scope? In this section, enlightening their minds, taking away their heart, and renewing their wills. And where do you find the mystery? Yet, so as they come most freely, being made willing by his grace. So let's look at the salient features. And I have specified here that they identify five features which I put this way. Whom, who, when, how, what. Whom? The receivers. Who? The author. When? The occasion. How? The divine agency and instrumental means. And what? Its general substance and nature. What is effectual calling? How does God do it? When does he do it? Who does it? And who receives it? Now those are the salient features that they specify in this section. And they begin with this. Those whom God has predestined to life. So who are those? All of God's elect. And who is the author? God. He is pleased effectually to call. Romans 8.30 Moreover, whom he, God the Father, did predestinate, them he also called. He predestined them to be conformed to the image of his Son. So the author features God the Father. And whom he called, them he also justified, etc. Now when did he do it? It says, in his appointed and accepted time, at conversion, because it says that he calls them out of darkness unto light. So he calls them effectually out of the state of sin and into a state of grace. In his appointed time, that he decided before the foundation of the world, he calls his elect out of the state of sin, who were by nature children of wrath, even as the rest, into the state of grace at conversion. How does he do it? It says, by his word and spirit. Through the instrumentality of God's word, having, begotten, having been begotten again by means of the word of God and by the Holy Spirit of God. 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verses 13 and 14 sums this up. We are bound to give thanks to God always, for you, brothers, beloved of the Lord, because God has from the beginning chosen you to salvation through sanctification of the Spirit and belief of the truth, whereunto he called you through our gospel. 
It's by the word of God as the instrument and the agency, the personal agency of the Holy Spirit of God and by the instrumentality of God's gospel word that he calls sinners from death to life. He calls his elect out of the state of sin and into the state of grace. And what exactly is the effectual call? What is its nature? It's a summons, a gospel summons from death to life. Effectually to call out of that state of sin and death in which they are by nature to grace and salvation by Jesus Christ. 1 Peter 2.9, you are an elect race, etc., that you may show forth the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. And you has he quickened when you were dead in your trespasses and sins. By grace you have been saved. So it's by grace that he calls elect sinners out of darkness, out of the state of sin, out of spiritual death, resurrects them spiritually and brings them to a state of grace and to life and salvation by Jesus Christ. He calls them out effectually through his word and spirit. He doesn't bring them from darkness to light and from the state of sin to a state of grace by the word alone or by the spirit alone, but by the word and spirit. The agency, the personal agency of the Holy Spirit and the instrumentality of the gospel word he summons sinners from darkness to light. So those are the salient features. Who receives it? God's elect. Who authors it? God the Father. When does he do it? At conversion. How does he do it? By his word and spirit. And what exactly does he do? He calls them out of darkness to light, from a state of sin to a state of grace, that's the concept, salient features of the effectual call. Now next, they use a series of participles to specify the universal scope. That his work in the heart of a believer in calling that person out of darkness to light involves the entire soul, the mind, the affections, and the will. Observe, enlightening their minds spiritually and savingly to understand the things of God. The affections, taking away their heart of stone and giving them a heart of flesh. And the will, renewing their will and wills and by his almighty power determining them to that which is good. Remember last time when we looked at free will, we saw that in a state of sin, the will was characteristically fixed on evil. He changes the moral fixation of the will when he effectually calls a sinner from a state of sin to a state of grace. He changes a sinner to a saint. He changes the whole soul morally. It's a moral renewal of the whole soul. A radical inward moral change produced by the supernatural power of the Holy Spirit by means of his word 
working upon the heart. Taking out a heart of stone, renewing the mind, realigning the moral fixation or habitus of the will. That's what he does. First of all, enlightening their minds. Acts 26.18, to open their minds and to turn them from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God. In Ephesians 1.18, the eyes of your understanding being enlightened that you may know what is the hope of his calling. The moral renewal of the heart. Ezekiel 36.26, it says, I will give you a new heart. And a new spirit I'll put within you. And I'll take away the stony heart out of your flesh. And give you a heart of flesh. The renewal of the will. He works in us to will. And to work for his good pleasure. He changes morally the whole soul. It is a comprehensive moral renewal. And yet, there's also a great mystery. He doesn't force people to come. He works in us to will, but not in such a way that he turns human beings into puppets and destroys the free agency of human beings. It says, yet so as they come most freely, being my, made willing by his grace. And they appeal to a text that says, your people will be made willing in the day of your power. The mystery is, how does God work on the human heart and the human will without turning human beings into puppets so that they come most freely? I don't know. The regenerating work of God is a great mystery. But that's how he does it. In a mysterious way. So that he doesn't turn people into puppets. But that they come most freely. Being made willing by his grace. So you have the features and the scope and the mystery. Now that brings me in the second place this morning to paragraph two, which is the cause of it. The why. What power? Paragraph two. This effectual cause is of. I said cause. This effectual call is of. God's free and special grace alone. Not from anything at all foreseen in man. Nor from any power or agency in the creature being wholly passive therein. Being dead in sins and trespasses. Until being quickened and renewed by the Holy Spirit, he is thereby enabled to answer this call and to embrace the grace offered and conveyed 
in it. And that by no less power than that which raised up Christ from the dead. Well, they're saying that the cause, the because, the reason why, is not that God foresaw any condition in man or that man did something good to deserve it or that somehow man does something. That the cause is not in man. It's in God and in God alone. It's all of God. It's all of God's free grace and special grace to those that he chose in Christ before the foundation of the world. Not any foreseen merit or any power or agency in them. They're totally dead in their sins. They couldn't contribute anything to their regeneration. And they respond in repentance and faith because he quickens and renews them in their whole soul by the Holy Spirit. So the cause is God. God's grace, God's power, God's choice, God's sovereignty. Now, in our 1689 London Confession, the structure is somewhat obscure difficult to follow with all the parentheses and stuff. There's a reason for that. And our Baptist fathers wanted to express rather perhaps than structural clarity their unity with the Presbyterians and the Baptists of a former generation. And so what they did here is they pasted together Statements in the First London Baptist Confession and the Westminster Confession. They pasted it together, and that's what makes it difficult to follow and interrupt it with parentheses and all this stuff. So what I'm going to do is I want you to see that so you don't lose sight of the basic point. I'm going to read the Westminster Confession, what it says about this, and then I'm going to read the pertinent section of the first London Confession, the Baptist Confession, that they pasted together with it. And you can see how they put this paragraph together. So look what the Westminster says. Westminster says, this effectual call is of God's free and special grace alone, not from anything foreseen in man who is altogether passive therein until being quickened and renewed by the Holy Spirit, he is thereby enabled to answer this call and to embrace the grace offered and conveyed in it. Now that reads simply and straightforwardly as far as 17th century English goes. That's pretty clear and straightforward. And you see how that serves as the basic structure of what the Baptists wrote. But that's pretty clear, right? It's of God's free and special grace alone. It's not caused or from anything foreseen in man who's altogether passive. It's not any of that. Until man being quickened and renewed by the Holy Spirit is by the Holy Spirit's quickening and renewing enabled to respond to the call in repentance and faith. Right? That's Westminster. Now, here's the appropriate section 
of the first London Confession, and I'm going to read now the first London Confession, and I guess it's paragraph 14. Faith is ordinarily begotten by the preaching of the gospel or word of Christ without respect to any power or agency in the creature, but it being wholly passive and dead in trespasses and sins, doth believe and is converted by no less power than that which raised Christ from the dead. Now they took statements from that. And that by no less power than that which raised up Christ from the dead, nor from any power agency in the creature, being dead in trespasses and sins, all those things in parenthesis are verbatim quotes from the first London Confession. That's why they put those things in there. That's why it's a little hard to follow what they're saying. Because they're combining. They're combining the way that the Baptists and the Presbyterians of a previous generation said this. And they wanted to do that. They said, you know, maybe it's worth it to obscure the structure just a little bit in order to express our unity, both with our Baptist fathers and our Presbyterian fathers of the former generation. So that's why they did it. Does that make sense? That's where those things in parentheses come from. They come from the first London Confession, paragraph or chapter 14. But the basic idea is clear. 2 Timothy 1.9, who saved us and called us not according to our works, but according to his own purpose and grace given us in Christ before the world began. And so they open up various passages that teach very clearly that it's all of grace. Westminster Confession offers a whole bunch of texts. 1 Corinthians 2.14, Romans 8.7, Ephesians 2.5, he's quickened us together with Christ by, uh, by, by grace you're saved. Um, etc. All passages that show that people dead in sins are saved by grace and by grace alone, not because of anything they do, not by their own merit, not by their own works, but all by God's grace. So the cause is God's power and God's grace alone. It is all of God and all of grace. Which brings me then to the necessity. Now they open up the necessity of the effectual call in the final two paragraphs. And they begin to open up the necessity by, first of all, speaking about an exception. And then after they address the exception, they spell out the rule. What's the exception? Well, it's in paragraph 10.3. Elect infants dying in infancy are regenerated and saved by Christ through the Spirit who works when, where, and how he pleases. So are 
all elect persons who are incapable of being outwardly called by the ministry of the word. And that's why I say it's an exception. Because when they define the effectual call, they define it as the word and spirit. But here they're talking about people that are regenerated by the spirit who are incapable of being outwardly called by the word. Elect infants dying in infancy and other persons incapable of being outwardly called. People perhaps with so little mental capacity that they can't comprehend the word. The old writers wanted it to be known that they're not saying that there's no hope whatsoever apart from the word as though God is somehow limited and he can't save people without the mental capacity or those that die in infancy. Of course he can. There is an exception to the effectual call and I call it an exception because it's not an exception to regeneration. The exception that they're talking about is they defined it as the word and spirit. And this is the ministry of the spirit to those who are incapable of receiving the ministry of the word. That's why they put that in there. They want to show you that there is an exception. They start with the exception. They appeal to John 3.8. And also, I would appeal to a text that they don't necessarily mention, but Luke 1.44, Behold, when the voice of your salutation came to my ears, the babe leaped in my womb for joy. It's possible for a baby to be regenerated in its mother's womb. I believe that text is stating explicitly that John the Baptist was regenerated in his mother's womb. Yet John the Baptist in his mother's womb didn't hear, understand, believe the gospel, repent and believe. His mind, his conscience had not yet developed. He was an unborn baby in his mother's womb when God regenerated him. So all things are possible with God. And God is able to regenerate people who are not capable of hearing and understanding the gospel like John the Baptist in his mother's womb. Now, there's another version of this which has been published mostly in, I guess mostly in English, starting around 1860. And starting around 1860, this began to be published and sent all around. I don't know who did it, but if I were doing an investigation, the person of interest, and this investigation would be a very famous British preacher. And uh, I guess we'll never know for sure whether he did it personally or not. But anyway, it reads this way. Notice the difference. I'm going to read what the old writers wrote exactly first. Elect infants dying in infancy are regenerated and saved. That's what the 1689 says. This is what the 
doctored version says. Infants dying in infancy are elect and regenerated. See the difference between those two things? Elect infants dying in infancy are regenerated. Infants dying in infancy are elect and regenerated. Now those are two different things. That version began to be distributed around 1860. And it's that modernized, edited, doctored version that our Constitution in Grand Rapids and our Constitution at Trinity took exception to. But we don't take exception in Grand Rapids and we never addressed it in Trinity, but we certainly, I never, if they addressed it at Trinity, I wasn't there when they did. But in Grand Rapids, we don't take exception to the 1689. So I wanted to see what the Constitution of Amazing Grace says about it, whether it takes exception to this or not, and it doesn't. It doesn't address it at all. It doesn't say anything about it. It just allows for modern language versions. And some of the modern language versions, well, anyway, it doesn't really address the issue of Amazing Grace. So anyway, there's no reason to take exception to the 1689, what it actually says. The doctored version in our judgment, goes beyond scripture and addresses a matter dogmatically about which the scripture is silent. But the exception then being stated, we come to the rule. And the rule is in paragraph 4. Others not elected, though they may be called by the ministry of the word, and may have some common operations of the spirit, they may make a profession of faith for a while. Yet, not being effectually drawn by the Father, they neither will nor can truly come to Christ, and therefore cannot be saved. So what they're saying is that apostates are not really saved. Much less can men that do not receive the Christian religion be saved, be they never so diligent to frame their lives according to the light of nature and the law of that religion they do profess, and to assert and maintain that they may is without warrant of the word of God. Now, they make reference to uh, the stony ground hearer and the, uh, the one that receives the word with joy, who has no root in himself but endures for a while. And time of tribulation falls away in Matthew 13, 20, and 21. That it's not possible for people to be saved without calling on Jesus Christ is clearly articulated in the scripture. In uh, Acts chapter 4, Verse 12, neither is there any salvation in any other, for there's no other name under heaven given among men wherein we must be saved. John 14, 6 says, Jesus says to him, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father except by me. And then they also appeal to John 4, 22, and, X, and John 17, 3, you, you worship, you don't know what. 
We know what we worship for salvations of the Jews. And this is life eternal, that they may know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. I also think it's relevant, uh, Romans 10.13, whoever will call on the name of the Lord will be saved. Should we also say whoever won't call on the name of the Lord will be saved too? Well, what's the point? Whether you call on the name of the Lord or not, you'll be saved. I don't think so. That can't be right. Whoever will call on the name of the Lord will be saved. And whoever won't call on the name of the Lord will be saved? No. No, 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 no. And then, the Westminster Confession says something that our confession altered. And I want to read to you what the Westminster Confession says because I... I believe it's true. And I don't know why our confession altered it. And to assert and maintain that they may is without warrant in the word of God. That's what our confession says. Westminster Confession says this. And to assert and maintain that they may is very pernicious and to be detested a little stronger. And to assert that people can be saved without Christ is without warrant in the word of God. And to assert that people can be saved without Christ is very pernicious. And to be detested. Why did they change that? I don't know. You know what pernicious means? Harmful. Hurtful, dangerous, and hurtful. And to be detested means it's not something to think, oh, it's cool. If you think people can be saved without Christ, it's no big deal. No, it's detestable. It's something that we should respond to with emotional rejection. And it's something that we should regard as spiritually harmful and extremely dangerous. Very pernicious. And, we're, and, and the Westminster Confession, to support that strong language, uses 2 John 1.9. Whoever transgresses and abides not in the doctrine of Christ doesn't have God. He that abides in the doctrine of Christ, he has both the Father and the Son. If there come any to you, and bring not this doctrine. Don't receive him into your house. Don't bid him Godspeed. For he that bids him Godspeed is a partaker of his evil deeds. If any man doesn't love the Lord Jesus, let him be anathema. 1 Corinthians 16.22 And Galatians 1.6 and 7 I marvel that you're so soon removed from him that called you to the grace of Christ to another gospel, which is not another. But there's some that trouble you and will pervert the gospel of Christ. But though we are an angel of heaven, preach any other gospel to you than that we preach, let him be accursed. Uh, that sounds more compatible, those texts sound more compatible with very pernicious, pernicious and to be detested than simply with saying, is without warrant in the word of God. 
Oh, that's just not warranted to say that. That's very pernicious and should be detested. That's unwarranted. Well, our confession just says it's unwarranted. It seems to me the Westminster Confession hit the nail on the head when it says it's very pernicious, hurtful. Is that not there? You know, it was in us. It was in a version of the confession that I used to prepare this. Let me read what it says. Yeah, it's not in the version that we have here. No, there's no statement here at all. There's not. There, yeah, no, it's not. It's not there. It's not here. It's in a version of the 1689 that I had, an online version of 1689. I'll have to. I'll have to get back to you on that. I have to get back to you on that exactly. How that's in some of them and not in others. I don't know, Adam. That's a good question. I was wondering about that yesterday when I was preparing this. I don't know. It will, well, it'd be right in paragraph four. It's right in the end of paragraph four. Um, it's in the end of paragraph four in some of the versions. No, there's nothing in this version. No, there's nothing, there's nothing in this version. Okay, that's a great question. I wondered about it yesterday. I had one version with nothing in it. I had another, the one that's in our book, our hymn book, had another version with that statement in it, is without warrant in the word of God. And honestly, I don't know where, don't know where it came from. I thought it was in the 1689. It's not in the version of 1689 we have in our book. No, it's not. So it's in some version that I had, and I don't know which one it was off the top of my head. I agree. I'm not, I'm not clear on that, Adam. You're absolutely right. I don't know. No, I, you mean the early one? I don't think so. No, I'm talking about 1689, not 1644 to 46. I don't know. I'll, I'll, I'll do some more research on that. I'll get back to you about the origin of that phrase and exactly where it came from. That's a very good question, Adam. I'm glad you brought that up. That was, it was confusing me yesterday. And I, I didn't look in the hymn book. Should have looked in the hymn book. Anyway, yeah, it's not in the... That whole statement, let me, that's exactly right. That whole statement that says, uh, and to assert and maintain that they may is very pernicious, that's in the Westminster. But this one, and to assert and maintain that they may is without warrant in the word of God? I don't, that's not in the hymn book. That's not in paragraph four in the hymn book. So exactly what version of the 1689 that's in? I don't know. Good, good, good. Point. The one we have in our hymn book has nothing, just completely deletes it. In any form, either without warrant or very pernicious. So, I for one go for the very pernicious form of it. And I'll, and I'll do more study and find out about that other phrase, Adam, and I'll get back to you. Uh, well, not next week, because I'm not teaching next week, but God willing, but 